It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. And we've got to walk this week. And we don't want to do it in the darkness. Ancient words. Guide us home to you. Help us to live by the light of your truth. And that we might always rejoice and be thankful for you. And thankful for life. And worshiping you well. And uh, pleasing your great name. Because one day we'll stand before you. And we thank you, God, so much for your truth to guide us home. Guide us by it now, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as the sign says, kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. They saw it before I had an opportunity to say it. Hey, if you'll open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of John. Uh, The book of John is where we're going to start this morning. And um, it's good to see you out this morning. I, I thank you for making time to be here, taking time. I know the uh, weather yesterday has put a damper and, uh, on some things, but uh, we are excited and glad to be able to be here together. We spent last, week, time, last week's message was called, This is the Life, and that is the title of this week's message. As we think about this idea of this is the life, one of the things we're going to do this morning as we walk through the past this, uh, our text is we're going to look at a variety of Bible passages. So I want to encourage you to make sure your fingers are warmed up. We're going to look at a variety of passages. But I also want to put a plug in for being able to know your Bible and to know it well and to find your way around the Bible. Uh, we shared this a little bit last week, but just because you've um, been in church for a long time doesn't necessarily mean that you're able to find your way around the Bible or you're just not familiar or never really been taught kind of where things are. And on Sunday nights, we're doing a series, a little mini-series called, um, it's a Bible Basics Workshop. And we're learning the books of the Bible in a creative way. We're going to work on actually the, some more Bible books tonight, and we're going to work on the Ten Commandments tonight, and doing this in a fun way. And one of the fun ways we're doing it is we're using these cartoons, all right? So this is, a, for example, this is one of the books of the Bible. This is the book of E, and what's that E doing? He is fishing. This is the book of E-fishing, or the book of Ephesians, and the theme to the book of Ephesians is bodybuilding, that the church is the body of Christ, we are to be being built up together. And so tonight, as we work on learning the books of the Bible in order, we're going to use these pictures like this, the book of Ephesians. What is the theme? Bodybuilding. Okay, now we also have the next book is the book of this guy. He is, looks like he's making pancakes, but they're ends, and he's flipping those ends. This is the book of flipping ends, the book of Philippians. All right, very good. And the theme of the book of Philippians, uh, Paul's writing it from jail, and um, he, it's, the theme is joy. But as we see this animal, what kind of animal is that? It's a bull. And what's he doing? He's humming. Hmm, 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 hmm. The theme of the book of Philippians ends is happily humble. Right? So you get the happily humble. All right, okay. So anyway, now... You think they're kind of corny, but they'll stick, right? Because the theme of the book of Ephesians, Ephesian, is what? Bodybuilding. So that's right. What is the theme of the book of Flippin' Ends? Happily humble. See, it's a good memory tool, all right? So I encourage you to be a part of this. It's a good way to learn the Bible books and uh, to learn them in order and a theme to each of them and uh, understand how the Bible all fits together and the fullness, the grand story of the Bible. We're putting all that together. So plug for tonight. Well, this is the life. That is our topic this morning. As we think about this is the life, we think about what is it that makes life life. 
not just our heart beating, our respiratory rate, but what makes, makes life full, what makes it meaningful, what makes life satisfying. And last week we opened our Bibles and we learned from John seventeen three that God defines life, eternal life, by knowing God. If John seventeen three says this, but this is eternal life that they may know you, knowing God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That knowing God is what life is all about. And this knowing God has consequences. And in John ten ten it says, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That God wants us to know Him, and this knowing Him is about eternal life, a life that goes on forever, but it is also about a quality of life that is marked by abundance. It's marked by joy and peace and patience and all these different fruits of the Spirit. Well, this morning we're going to talk about knowing God. And as we talk about knowing God this morning, we're going to see that know, to know God is to love God. All right, to know God is to love God. And we think of this idea of love, that love is certainly a popular topic. I mean, who doesn't like love, right? I mean, there's a song, I think, in the 70s or 80s that says, Love Stinks. I think it's an old song. But overall, we like love. Love is a very popular idea. There are multitudes of songs have been written about it, poems, books, letters, all kinds of things have been written about love. The Bible says a lot about love. We read in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient, love is kind, that love um, does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it does not insist on its own way, love is not irritable, it is not resentful, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, and then we're told in 1 Corinthians 4, 8, love never ends. Love's a wonderful thing. And as we think about understanding this idea of knowing God, that knowing God is related to loving God. Because if we truly know God, we know who He is, that the result will be that we will love Him. Turn with me in your Bibles. I know you're in John, but turn back, keep your place here, and turn back to the book of 1 John. And we're going to be in the book of 1 John uh, this morning and several different occasions this morning. If you didn't, have, didn't bring a Bible this morning or don't have one, there's a pew Bible close to you. And I want to encourage you to use a pew Bible. I'll give you the page numbers uh, for things. But I want you to check out what I'm saying so that you're not just assuming that I'm telling you the right things, but recognizing that it's God's Word that is our authority. So 1 John chapter 4, this is on page 1023 in the pew Bible. And in this context of this book, John is writing to us about how can we know if I truly know God. Okay, and and there are a number of things he says in this book. And in 1 John 4, verse 8, it says this. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Right? And we see these ideas put together. Knowing God and loving God are putting together. And he's saying here, if you, don't love, if you don't love, then you don't know God because God is love. Which we would turn that around and say then, if I do know God because God is love, and if I know Him, what will be the consequence in my life? I will do what? I will love. Right? So knowing God is tied to loving God. And in this passage, we see it all put together. And so this morning that... The question I want us thinking through this morning is the question that we're going to see back in John chapter 21. 
that Jesus poses to Peter. In John chapter 21, back on page 927 in your pew Bible, Jesus has died on the cross, he has risen from the dead, he's appeared to the disciples, but at this point the disciples really don't know what's next. They're kind of thinking, okay, well, what's, what's really happening next? In John chapter 21, Jesus um, appears to the disciples. They have all gone fishing, and they spent the whole night fishing and didn't catch anything. Jesus shows up on the seashore, and he says to them, hey, cast your nets to the other side. Uh, they, say, they realize they haven't caught anything all night. What's it going to buy? Why not? So they tried, and they catch so many fish, they can't hardly drag the net in. They get it in. There's 153 fish that they caught. And then Jesus invites them to breakfast. He says, come have breakfast with me. And so Jesus is bringing his disciples close to him. As he risen from the dead, he is now serving them by making them breakfast. And in verse 15, it says this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we would pause here and we would rewind a little bit and think, why, does Jesus, why is Jesus asking Peter this question? What, the last time we saw an interaction with Peter and Jesus, what was going on? Remember the Last Supper? At the Last Supper, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to go. He's letting them know that he is going to leave, that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten, all that. And Peter's like, that's never happening. I'm not going to let that happen. I mean, Jesus, I will die for you. And Jesus is basically says to Peter, don't be so confident, Peter, because frankly, by the time the, time the, by the, time the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to have denied me three times. Peter's like, well, no way that's happening. But Jesus, a few hours later, gets arrested. He gets taken in the court. He's on trial. And Peter's warming himself by a fire. And some servant girl asks Peter and says to him, aren't you one of them? And what does he say? I don't know what you're talking about. And three times he denies Jesus. This Jesus that he has been with for three years, the Jesus he said he would lay his, down his life for, he denies. And then he does it again. And he does it a third time. And so Jesus comes to Peter after his resurrection and comes to him. And he's asking Peter this question. Peter, do you love me? Important question for us to consider, even in the context that Peter heard this in. Because Peter heard it in the context of failure. That he had failed. He had failed to live up to his own expectations. He had failed to live up to, to, to being a defender of a friend. He had fallen way short in all of this. And we think about this question, do you love me? That is a question that God comes to us with in the context of our failure, in the context of our sin, in the context of our own rebellion. And, and really it's a question that we should be asking ourselves somewhat regularly whenever we think about how we conduct our lives. We get in a fight with somebody and we say some nasty things, things that are way inappropriate to be asking ourselves, man, do I really love God? Because God is love, and if I know him, that, that didn't reflect a love for him. That whenever we are thinking about our finances and thinking we can take some shortcuts financially and kind of explain why it might be okay, and it's not, but we know that it's wrong, and we're saying, do I really love God, or am I just loving me? 
We think about other sins like sins of immorality, looking at pornography, looking, um, having relationships with people that we don't have any business having relationships with, and we're asking ourselves, who do I really love? And we need to be asking ourselves this question. Well, as we understand this, and asking this question, we recognize that what Peter is going, Jesus is doing in this, he's going to ask this question. How many times is he going to ask Jesus, Peter, how many times will P, Jesus ask Peter this question? Yeah, you know, three times, right? We think, well, why three times? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Jesus is asking these questions, not primarily to probe, because Jesus knows Peter does love him. Jesus isn't asking questions to gather information, but to challenge Peter to think. To think about what he has done, to think about where he is, to think, does he truly love Jesus? And we, because the question of, does Peter love Jesus, that's what is in question. The question, does Jesus love Peter? There's no question about that. There's no question about, does Jesus love Peter? Because Jesus, that's actually why Peter and Jesus had that discussion. Peter says, Jesus, I will die for you. Jesus is like, Peter, you got this all backwards. You don't die for me. I'm going to die for you. Scriptures tell us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we recognize that there is no doubt that Christ loves us. And the question is, do we love him? And so this morning, we're going to spend time looking together, seeking to know God in greater ways to understand why is it that we can love God? Why should we love God? And, and what does loving Him look like? And so we're going to spend time this morning looking at that. And so the first point in your outline is on the screen already is this, that Jesus is worthy of your love. Jesus is worthy of our love. Why is that? Well, you're in John 21. Turn back to the first chapter of the book of John. John chapter 1, and this book begins, this is on page 886 in your pew Bible. The book of John begins where Genesis begins. The book of Genesis begins with the first words, in the beginning. Okay, that's how John starts, in the beginning. And it says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the he was with he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made and in him was life and the life was the light of men so we see this first part who is Jesus he's the creator creator of all things this verse says that nothing was made without Jesus being involved with it so when we hear in Genesis 1 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Jesus is the one who is accomplishing that work for us and we see this creator of the universe we skip down to verse 14 and verse 14 says and the word became flesh this Son of God, who is co-equal with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have this Trinitarian understanding of a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that this Word, who was with God and who was God, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the, His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what did Jesus do? The Son of God took on flesh, and He took on flesh for what purpose? Look at verse 18. It says, no one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right hand. He, that is the word who took on flesh, has made him known. 
what was Jesus' mission? It was to save us, but so that we could know God. Jesus revealed God to us. And so we have recognized in this that, that why is Jesus worthy of our love? Because he is our creator. He has made us. He gives us everything that we need. Turn with me in the book to the book of Colossians. In the book of Colossians. Tonight we're going to see that the theme of the book of Colossians is commander-in-chief. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, this is on page 983 in your pew Bible. Why is God worthy of our love? The first point we want to see is that he is our creator. He is the giver of life that we owe our very lives to him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, this is talking about Jesus again. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, just pause and look at that. It says he is the image of of the invisible God. Can you see an invisible God? Well, of course not, because it's invisible. But it says that Jesus is the image of an invisible God. So what does Jesus do? Jesus makes the invisible God visible. He reveals him to us. He is the image of the invisible God. And then it says, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we read the firstborn, and we often think, okay, well, Jesus is the firstborn, like in our family, the firstborn is the first one who's born, right? When we think of this idea in a biblical sense, the firstborn, firstborn does not mean the first, it's not the idea that Jesus was the first creation or the first thing that came into being. That's not what it means because Jesus is eternal. Jesus had no beginning, okay? He's been forever, and so Jesus isn't a creation, the highest and greatest creation. He's not that, that Jesus is God. And so when it says here that he is the firstborn of all creation, what this means in the context of the listeners of the day, they would have heard it, the firstborn has privilege and priority. That Jesus is the firstborn, which means he has all privilege and priority in all of creation. Why? Because he's a creator. Why? Because he's God. He is the image of the invisible God. It says in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17, He is before all things, that means he has first place, and in him all things hold together. That's an incredible idea. All things hold together. Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, he is the sustainer. He holds it all together. He puts it all together and keeps it together for us. right? And I think that certainly means in creation, God is the sustainer of all things. He holds all things together. I can't help but just take a little bit of liberty with the text and think, say that when Jesus holds all things together, you think about relationships and marriages, what holds those together? It ought to be Jesus. We think what's going to hold my marriage together is my love for the person that I've married on that wedding day. You know, I'm the bride and the groom are here, and they're just love. What's going to hold us together is our love for one another. And listen, I wish that were true, and I wish I could tell you that is what's going to keep it together. But listen, what's going to happen is there are going to be times when you're not going to like each other very well. Right? Okay, now... Anybody that's married, would you agree with me with that? Now, let, let, let me ask another question. If you are married, and you've been married for more than a year, has there been a time where you found it difficult to like your spouse? Okay. All right. 
Okay, now if you said, not me, I'm gonna say, my next question is, what does your spouse say? <laughs> because we realize what happens in marriage. Who, who, who make up a marriage? Makes up a marriage. Two sinners. That's right. And when sinners live together, how do they relate to each other from time to time? Sinfully. What do we need? We need something more to keep us together. Because So what do we need? And it's this love for Jesus. And I will tell you, that is why, frankly, why marriages in the church should look radically different than marriages of the world. That why do we fix problems? Why will we go to work to have hard conversations? Why will we work hard to this? Because we love Jesus. Why will I tell my spouse that something that they're doing is wrong and they need to change it and I know it's going to cause a fight and they're not going to like it? Why in the world would I have that conversation? Because I love Jesus as much or more than I love them because if I love Jesus, that's going to help them. might cause some trouble for me, but it's good. So, well, back to our text. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He holds all things together. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything he might be preeminent. Why is Jesus worthy of our love? Because he's our creator. He's the sustainer. He has preeminence over all things. And it says, for in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why is Jesus worthy of our love? He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He holds all things together and he is our savior. All of these reasons are reasons why we love God. Turn with me to one other passage. Actually, there are two. First John chapter 4. This is on page 1023. In 1 John, this idea that he made peace with us through the cross, what is that about? How does that work? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And in this verse is a theological word that we need to understand. It says this. Verse 10, in this is love. All right, what's love? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Look down in verse 19, and we're going to come back to that. Verse 19 says, we love because why? He first loved us. You see, in our natural state, because we're sinners, we don't love God. We have to come to an understanding of who God is. We have to know Him, know His love, and then we're captured by the fact that I can know God, I can love God. My response is to love Him because He first loves me. Now, back up to verse 10, it says, And this is love, not that we loved God, we didn't take the initiative, but that God loved us, even in our sin, and sent His Son to be, and here's the theological word, through a propitiation or atoning sacrifice, I think some versions have, their propitiation for our sins. All right, what is propitiation? This is idea has to do with our salvation. Propitiation is related to God's wrath, that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve because of our sins, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve to be sent to hell because of our sin. 
if we would use this idea of understanding what is propitiation and is this idea that, that God's wrath, imagine God's wrath is this flaming meteor heading right for us, right? It is GPS targeted right on my heart. I cannot get away from it. That meteor of wrath is going to hit me. Propitiation is this, is that Jesus coming from over here, coming from heaven, coming down, living a sinless life, that he comes and he pulls me out of the way and he takes the wrath that I deserve. That meteor crushes Jesus. That meteor ends Jesus' life. Jesus dies on the cross under the wrath of God. And because Jesus bore the wrath of God... There's no wrath left for me. I'm rescued. I'm free because of what Jesus did. And why is that? Back to our verse, verse 10. And this is love. This is what love is. Not that we love God, but he sent his son to be the propitiation, the one who received wrath for our sins. That's what Jesus has done for us. Why is Jesus worthy to be loved? He is worthy to be loved because He is our Creator. He is our Sustainer. He is our Savior. And because He loves us and has loved us by giving giving Himself for us. Jesus is worthy of our love. Well, as we understand that Jesus is worthy of our love, and we think of this idea of this is the life, back to John chapter 21, when Jesus finished breakfast... Chapter 21, verse 15, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then he finishes the sentence by saying, do you love me more than these? So they're sitting around having breakfast, and when Jesus says, do you love me more than these? There's some debate about the, who the these are. I frankly think we could put almost anything in there. But when they're sitting around, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than the, do you love me more than these fish? I mean, you went fishing, you love fishing, you're a fisherman. Do you love me more than these? Or they're sitting around the fire with breakfast with his disciples. Do you love me more than these friends? Do you love me more than these? And, and what I want us to see in this is when Jesus is asking us, do you love him more? One of the things I want us to see is that God is worthy to be loved, not just simply to be loved, but he's worthy to be loved with all of our affections. And our affections are our desires, our longings, our wants. That, 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 that's what we desire, that those are our affections. And God wants to be loved and should be loved with all of our affections, all of our desires. And, and we see this back in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, all the way back in the Old Testament, we see hints of this very early in the days of the nation of Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy, this is the fifth book of the Bible. It says in chapter 6, this is on page 151 in the Pew Bible, God is reminding the Israelites about what his expectations are for them as his people. And in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Okay, here it is. We shall love him. And now, here's this affection. What are we to love him with? With all of our heart, 
our soul and our might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. And this idea that we're to love God with our affections is that from the deepest parts of who we are, the, the richest part, the most significant part of who we are in our love is directed towards Him. All of our affections are to be given to Him. And we understand that, this, that we understand knowing and loving God, that loving Him is to be our first priority. He is to be the center of it all. Our love for Him shapes all of our other loves. That God says that we are to love Him with all of our affections, that there is to be no gods before Him. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And we understand that in the context, in, in some context, but in the context of, of God, we sometimes like, well, what do you mean by no other gods before me? Here's the idea. God expects exclusive and primary love. Exclusive and primary love. Now, we understand that when it comes to marriage. Okay, let's think back to the wedding day, right? We have a, a, the groom, we have the bride up here, and they are pledging their love to one another. They're making vows to love each other and better for worse, richer for poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part. And they're in there saying to you, I love you. And now imagine this, we're at this wedding, and we're having talking to the couple and says, you know, do you, wife, uh, promise to love uh, your, your the spouse. And they're like, of course I choose to love them. And they ask the guy, do you promise to love her? And he's like, of course I'm going to love her. And, but we also understand that there's a level of exclusivity when we talk about that love. What I mean, what I mean by that is this, the guy or the lady can't say, well, of course I'm going to love her or him. Well, I, and there are a couple other people I'm going to love too along the way. But I'm going to love them. Now, if you're at a wedding like that, what are you probably thinking? So, are you going to love each other? Absolutely. But there are two or three other people I'm probably going to love along the way. You're like, this is a train wreck waiting to happen, right? This is not going to work out. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is about an exclusive love relationship. It is a primary relationship. That is what God desires of us is a primary relationship, an exclusive relationship, that we love Him first and most, and we love Him greater than anything else. We see this. We see Jesus declaring this in Matthew 10. Turn there with me. The book of Matthew, chapter 10. This is on page 815 in your pew Bible. Chapter 10, verse 37. And Jesus, what we're saying here is Jesus is saying that we're to love Him with all of our affections, primary and exclusive kind of love. Look what He says here in verse 37. This is significant because He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is a sobering, sobering statement in our culture. Because we live in a culture where we love kids most and first. And this is saying, listen, God is saying, if you're going to love your kids more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. 
and I believe the reason for that is because we think our, our, our kids great you know, on most days, right? They're great. How about the grandparents? Are grandkids great? Yeah, I go, oh, yeah, of course, okay. But we recognize they're great, they're special, and we have all these things and connections with them, and they are, and, and we're to love them. But this says if we love them more than we love Jesus, what that tells us is that we don't know Jesus. Do you understand that? Because if you knew Jesus, there's no way you could love your kids more than you love him. How could you? He's your Savior. He's your Creator. He gives you every breath you've ever taken. When we think about, when we wrestle with a passage like this, our passage shouldn't be like, man, God's kind of being mean and all that kind of stuff. And he says, I guess I need to love my kids less. He's not saying love your kids less. He's saying love him more. Because, listen, whenever we, listen, whenever we love God more than anything else, when we're loving God more, we love other things better. You understand that? You see, because if I get that mixed up and I'm loving my kids more than I love God, I'm not going to tell my kids some things they need to hear. If I love my wife more than I love God, I'm not going to have some conversations that I need to have. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm more concerned about what my kids think and what they like me and how they're going to turn out and all this and how I'm in control of things. I'm going to think the same thing in my relationship with my spouse rather than thinking about what does God want and I'm going to do what God wants even if it makes some things hard in my relationship as a parent or a spouse. You see, because whenever we don't do that, whenever we are putting these other things in the place of a love for God what we become is idolaters. And our kids and our spouse and the things that we get from that are things that we want from them, we want them to give us, we want to love them, we want them to love us, and, and we've, we've made them a God substitute. We say, God, I know you've created me, I know you've sustained me, I know you've given yourself for me, and you're good and all that kind of stuff. But right now, this is better. And when we say it like that, we're like, that's way wrong. But on the Tuesday afternoon, when I have to have the hard conversation, when I have to make some hard choices, it seems a little easier, doesn't it? God's calling us to love Him with all of our affections. And the way that we continue to love Him with all of our affections is by continuing to work hard to know Him. Because to know Him is to love Him. Well, as Jesus is calling us to this, we see him back in John chapter 1 calling Peter, telling us that Jesus is worthy to be loved. He's worthy to be loved with all of our affections. But look what he says in, back in chapter 21 of John. When he asked Jesus, do you, Peter, do you love me more than these? He says in verse 15, feed my lambs. He asked him again in verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And after Peter says yes, he says, tend my sheep. He says to him a third time, Simon, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's grieved and he said to him, Lord, you know, uh, the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
As we look at this, we see that Jesus is worthy to be loved with all of our affections, but we also recognize that Jesus is to be loved with all of our actions. A love for Jesus is a call to follow Jesus. The call to know Jesus and to love Him is a call to follow Him. He is the Good Shepherd. We are to follow Him. Well, what does it look like to follow the Good Shepherd? Turn back with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 15. And Jesus is teaching and He's talking about His love. He's talking about knowing Him. John 14, 15. This is on page 901. So, Jesus is worthy of our love, worthy to be loved with all of our affections, and also with all of our actions. John fourteen fifteen says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That loving Jesus is tied to obedience. Loving Jesus is tied to following Jesus. Jesus said this in another way in a few chapters earlier in John 10, when he says, My sheep, those who know him and love him, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. The same principle. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Huge statement that, that we realize that, 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 that knowing God, loving God, results in actions. I just can't say, I love God, 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 and not be keeping His commandments. Turn with me to uh, the book of 1 John, back to 1 John. We keep going there, because it's a book about love, the love of God. 1 John chapter 3. And we'll begin in verse 16, 1 John 3, 16. It's on page 1022. And it says this, and we'll begin in verse 16. He says, by this we know love, which is a great statement. This is how we know what love is. Okay, how do I know what love is? That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's deed, goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, so I see a need, I can help, but I don't do anything about it. He says, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So, I love God results in actions. How do I know if I love God? What kind of actions are going on? They're connected. They cannot be separated. As we look at one other verse, chapter 4, verse 20, we looked at 19 earlier. It says, we love because he first loved us. Verse 20, this is a sobering, punch-in-the-face kind of statement. All right, listen to what he says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, I love God. But I hate what that person did to me, and I can't stand them. I just soon spit on them as talk to them. He says, but I love God. He says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a what? A liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
This is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brothers. One of the things we see in our culture is love God, love God, love God. Live however you want to, do whatever you want to, but just love God. What we read in the Bible is love God, and if you love God, your life's going to look a certain way. It's going to look like walking in obedience to him. It's going to look like pursuing holiness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, hungering after God means things are going to be different in your life. If you know him, you will be different. You say, well, what if I think I know him, but I'm not any different? Then I would say you need to examine your knowledge and your love for him. Because if your life says you love you more than you love Jesus, it's not the word of God that's wrong. And the beautiful thing is you, listen, you don't have to beat yourself up over that. You need to repent and say, God, grow my love. Help me to truly understand what loving you needs to look like in my life. Because I know right now that if you say that love means I'm keeping your commandments, I'm living contrary to that something's wrong and that something's wrong is me and my understanding. God, forgive me. Renew me, restore me. I want to love you more and more. Well, as we look at this and we see in John chapter 21, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? If you love me, love, love God with all of our affections, all of our actions. And then John chapter 21, one last point I want us to see is, in this, Jesus says in verse 18 of chapter 21, he says, truly I say to you, okay, so Peter, you've, you've been restored, you love me, I know you love me. Peter, I'm going to use you in significant ways, you're going to feed my sheep, you're going to lead the church, you're going to do significant things. And he says in verse 18, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, we stop there and you read that and thinking, that's weird, right? What? I mean, dress himself? What, what all that mean? But we're given that by John. It says in verse 19, saying, This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. And if we would look at this in the context of Peter's relationship with Jesus. Back at the Last Supper, Peter said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you want me to go. And Jesus says, now you're going to deny me. Having Jesus died on the cross, raising from the dead, Jesus, God, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit, restores Peter. He now says, Peter, now you'll follow me. Now you will follow me. Because before you sought to save your skin, you, you were a chance to deny me. You denied me to save your skin. Peter, you're going to die because of my gospel. And then we would look at church history, would tell us that Peter did just that. He went from being a coward to the servant girl to this bold servant declaring God's word. Why? Because he knew Jesus better. He knew the fullness of who he was. He saw the love of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. And he realized because if, God, if I know God this way, if I love Jesus this way, there's nothing I'm not going to do for him. 
There's nothing I'm not going to do. And so what we see in this is that we're to love God with all of our affections. We're to love God with all of our actions. And we are to love God without compromise. Without compromise. Whatever the cost, we're going to follow him. I'm going to walk obediently with him. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 38, it says, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There are costs to following Jesus. And it may cost, it has people throughout the years, it has cost people their lives. Jesus says in Matthew 10, those verse 16 to 22, he tells them that Jesus is going to send them out as sheep among wolves. He tells them, you're going to be delivered over, you're going to be flogged, you're going to be dragged before governors, you're going to bear witness for me. Brother's going to deliver brother over to death. A father will turn his son over to death. Children will rise up against their parents, have them put to death, all because of this gospel. In the midst of all of this, he says, you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? In Revelation 2.10, it says, be faithful unto death. To be faithful, even if it means we die. In 12.11 of Revelation, it says that, and they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It says this, for they love not their lives even to death. They were willing to die for the gospel. And as we think about the implications of that for us, to that God is worthy of our love, worthy of love with all of our affections, with all of our actions, with uncompromising love, that we realize that most of us are not going to be faced with will we die for Jesus. It is very unlikely that most of us will ever be confronted with that. And so we think about the cost, and yet I will tell you that the cost of dying for Jesus is often different than the cost that we face Because what we are confronted with is not will we die for him, but will we die to ourselves as we live for him. The question we're going to be confronted with is not primarily will you die for Jesus, but will you die to yourself as you live for Jesus. He's worthy. He's worthy of being loved with all of our affections. Worthy of being loved with all of our actions. Worthy to be loved without compromise. And the question that we hear this morning is a question Jesus asked of Peter. Do you love me? Do you love him? Do your affections, your desires demonstrate you love him? Do your actions demonstrate that you love him? Are you loving him without compromise? Do you love him? Do you love him more than these fish, friends, family? Do you love him more than that? I'm going to close in just a moment. And as we do, I want to just encourage you. um, We're going to receive our offering in just a moment. But as I pray, I want to encourage you to examine yourself. Do I truly know God? And is this knowing him resulting in a love for him that is changing my life? That's clear. I do love him all of my actions, all of my affections without compromise. Let us pray.
Father, we are grateful for your love for us. God, we, you have loved us. Lord, you have loved us first by creator and our sustainer. You are our savior. You loved us and you continue to love us. We have every reason to love you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would stir our hearts. Help us to have an honest examination of ourselves. Do we truly know you? Do we truly love you? Do our lives bear witness to the reality of that? And God, this morning, if we would look at ourselves and see that we fall short in those areas, Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to invite us and make provision so that we could ask forgiveness, that we can be cleansed from loving other things, other people, other priorities more than you. God, thank you that you are worthy of our love. And God, I pray this morning that you would stir our hearts. And Lord, as we would go forward, that we would love you with an uncompromising love, with a boldness, with wisdom, with clarity, with passion, Lord, with all of our hearts. God, help us. Help us to be a people who are growing in our love for you and growing in our knowledge of you. God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and all he's done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.